0: This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. Okay, um, thank you very much. Um, And just to say thanks to um, ASEN for inviting me. It's always a privilege to um, participate in anything that I mean, not least because nationalism seems to feature in everything we do, particularly in academia, within the social sciences. Um, and also p- because um, if we think about the theme for today, which is nation building in the 21st century, reflections on the impact of migration, multinationalism and multiculturalism. Uh, Ghana is a very good example of that. And uh, we're probably going to get to grips with more of that um, this evening. So um, congratulations for braving the weather. I've still got some patches of snow up in my back garden, but never mind, um, that's okay. Um, so I thought actually that um, to, to, to ease myself into the um, discussion for today, um, I'll sort of begin with a few examples of nation states around the world, because um, we're told there are about over 200 countries in the whole world. I think two two four might be a closer um, figure to to, to that, Um, and just a handful are nation states. So perhaps if if I sort of maybe give some examples of, um, if we look at Asia, we've got Poland, which has got 96.7% ethnic Poles, 97.8% speak Polish at home. Hungary's got about 95% ethnic Hungarians uh, or majors. Um, Albania has 98.6% ethnic Albanians, Armenia, 98% ethnic Armenians, plus others, and Bangladesh has 98% ethnic Bengali. Um, so it's really very difficult to get 100%. I mean, so far, I think Egypt is 99%. Um, Arabs. So it's always very difficult to have, it's impossible really to have 100%, but there are a few in the 90s around. Um, so these are very good examples of nation-states, i.e. when Geona 1983 says where the political and natural units are congruent um, or are the same or coincide, nation-states. Um, if we go to Europe, we've got, and uh, I sort of chose my words very carefully here because you've got Portugal with all these Albarians, Arber- Celts, Greeks, Phoenicians, Romans, Jews, Suebi, Visigoths, Muslim, and Arabs. And this is an amalgam, but I sort of chosen my words, homogeneous amalgam, because over the years, these, these have all resided in one place, and it's now Portugal, or they're all Portuguese. So you can say heterogeneity has changed into homogeneity at this stage in Portugal. Um, if we look at England, we've got another homogeneous amalgam of heterogeneous Germanic tribes, including Angles, Saxons. Frisian and Jutes, um, and then if we look at Iceland, um, we've got you know previously Norwegian and El Celtic heritage, but now are ninety nine percent homogeneous with an identifiable single language, which is Icelandic. Um, fortunately, or unfortunately for them, they are too far away, so they haven't got too many immigration problems with people trying to sneak in. You'd have to brave the snow to get there. So, um, that is, th- these are also examples of nation states, but these are cases where they began with heterogeneous groups, lots of them, and over a long period of time, homogeneity has assumed. Um, so, so that's one set of, you know, different from what, what, what the other slide we looked at. Um, if we look at Africa, we've got Egypt, as I said, 99%. Um, the dates in brackets are when the countries got independent. Um, So Lesotho's got 99.7% ethnic Basotho, they're all bantus basically. And you'd probably be interested to know that Lesotho is actually a landlocked enclave sitting inside South Africa territory. Um, Swaziland is 98% ethnic Swazis. um, Botswana is 79% ethnic Tswana and Ghana is 79% of Guan ancestry. And I'll, 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 I'll sort of get more into that sometime this evening Uh, and as I'm sure you know um, West Africa is boiling at the moment with Cote d'Ivoire and um, Guinea has just died a little bit but I can guarantee within the next 25 months you know where we might see a few things happening there again Um, if we look at South West Africa I've put that in red because it's it's kind of you know um, we've got Ivory Coast which roughly 75% can uh, and then there's 20% That we can categorize as mostly ethnic Wataris um, plus some Guineans and Malians. And then you've got some 5% non-Africans. But glossing over this, there is a kind of a divide of um, the Northern Muslims and the South. Well, the reportage usually would say Christian, but I usually would say non-Islamic because you know that a Muslim will wash his feet at least once a day and go to the mosque, but we cannot guarantee that these other half um, are the very best. Someone might go to a funeral every three years and a wedding every four years, and that's probably about the only time they step in church. So just because they are not Muslim doesn't make them Christian. So I prefer to use non-Islamic than, than, than Christian South. Um, so that's, that's what we've got for Ivory Coast at the moment, or, or Cote d'Ivoire. Um, and Guinea um, is about 40% Fulani. 30% Mandinka, 20% Sosi, and um, another combination of 10% Pele, Kisi, and non-Africans made up of French, Lebanese, etc. Um, some of you may be aware that Guinea had elections recently. Um, at the first round, um, th- there was no outright winner, so he went to the second round, and at the second round, um, Alpha Condé got fifty-two point five percent of the votes. and the rest was well, dialogue. Got the rest, so so you can see a, a clear ethnic divide um, among the two candidates um, who picked up the rest from from the others. So this is this is another example of um, a multinational state where you've got multiple national identities within a single state jurisdiction, which theoretically is different from um, the examples of Portugal, England, and Iceland, where heterogeneity, has assumed homogeneity, which is also different from the other set, um, Egypt, the South or Swaziland and the others, which um, are sort of getting to the 100%. So these are examples of, you know, states, nation states, or, or those trying to get there somehow. Um, I, I thought i will sort of ease that in, in, into the discussion as we go along. Um, well, now, now let's kind of drill down to Ghana. Um, here we've got um as i said seventy nine percent of wider guan ancestry of which that's the breakdown um forty five point three percent akan and then four percent guan well the, the reason that's that is 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 this four percent are the only um tribe in Ghana that actually they 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 are more like a, a remnant small group of people who say they are guan and speak the guan dialect um although of course all all those who can trace their background to the old Ghana Empire are also of Guan ancestry. So that's why I've got the wider Guan ancestry 79 percent of which 45.3 percent is Akan, the Guan 4 percent, Gadangbe 7.3 percent, Dagbani 15.2 percent, Guruma 3.6 percent, Gurusi 2.6 percent, Mandibuzang 1 percent. And then you've got others who are about 11.7 um, percent. And these would have relatives in Togo or Benin. The Ever Belt stretches from eastern Ghana and cuts across four countries, eastern Ghana, Togo, Benin, and western Nigeria. Um, And I have to say, this 11% would have um, parents or or, or cousins or uncles or nieces, whatever, in in, in Togo, Benin or Nigeria. That's the Ever Belt. Um, And then other tribes, Paul Nugent calls them CTMs or... Central Togo minorities, um, kind of 1.4%, and then lots of um, you know, foreigners making up about 7.8%, and that brings it to, to a total of 99.999999%. Uh, so this is, so that, that's Ghana for you as we speak. It is very multi-ethnic or multinational uh, in a single state jurisdiction. Uh, but the 79% can trace their background to the old Ghana empire. Um, well, just kind of, you know, in the in, in pictorial sense, the old Ghana Empire was basically located somewhere uh, within, within, somewhere between the cities of Djerni and Timbuktu in Mali, present day Mali. That's where the old Ghana Empire was located. And um, I mean, there's another map which some of you may be familiar with. Uh, that's Mali there, that's Timbuktu, and Ghana comes down in the south, so the migration routes you know, along the Niger Bend uh, will sort of, you know, take you somewhere. I mean, lots of groups had their own migration routes. Um, you've also got another map. So you can see the Niger Bend, that's the blue, That's the Niger Bend, and you've got Timbuktu sitting like the, at the apex of it, um, around where the old Ghana Empire was. Um, and to be more precise, you've got the area between Jenny and Timbuktu, kind of dotted, um, so that's kind of precisely where in present-day in Mali, the old Ghana Empire, was geographically located. Um, so, sometime around 1067, the Almoravids were Muslims, and they, they raided the place. And because these people didn't want to be Muslims, they ran away, and so the migration took place, and and, and they took several routes and uh, ended up somewhere in, in southwards towards Ghana. So that's modern Ghana south of the Niger Bend um, if that kind of helps pictorially give you some idea of what has happened. Um, so as we speak, um, Ghana is like this, 10 administrative regions. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is the way Ghana looks like at the moment. So um, that's just in the pictorial sense. And what happens is, yeah, as I've explained, you know, that there's all this going on with, you know, um, this is the way it is. 79% can trace or can be traced directly to the old Ghana Empire. And I have to say that this is not some sort of political fantasy or some sort of idea which someone just made the app. There are at the very least 30 academic publications. We're talking about serious academic publications. Um, articles in serious anthropological and historical journals PhD monographs published over the years all the way from 1651 coming down so th- that's that's list 1 to 15 of academic publications on this very subject um, you can get from me later but, but just just so you know that this is a really strong academic heritage that this uh, conclusion has been arrived at um, that is list 16 to 30 um so I can list at least 30 someone may be able to list more than that I don't know. Um I'm just sort of at the bottom there. Uh I'm probably one of the one one of the last to make a contribution to the subject. Um and there are two brief points that I'd like to make which are that Eva Meyerowitz was an anthropologist in in, in the 1940s she interviewed and published in 1990 the results that she conducted in the chief's palaces of the 79 percent i've talked about or the royal households um the only contribution i make to the whole subject is that um since f- for the past 50 years what i've done since Eva my is that i had to review all the scattered evidence of at the very least the 30 authorships which we looked at and piece together the whole jigsaw. And that seemed to confer with what Marielle Marielle's found out that they can be traced to the old Ghana Empire. Uh, but the evidence is very scattered. I mean, you've got at least 30 writers contributing their bits uh, here and there. Um, so what I did in 2007 was to, was to publish my book, sort of to piece together the jigsaw. Um, and as I said, that brings us to this point, this is the way Ghana looks like. And the problem, well, the scenario in Africa at the moment is, as as some of you may know, uh, because of the partition of Africa, um, lots of multiple national identity groups were bunched together within demarcated territory. So you may find, you know, you're put together in the demarcated territory, and that becomes the new state. Uh, And the OAU, the Organization of African Unity, decided that these boundaries should become sacrosanct. And so that is the way it became. Um, And we find in Africa, actually, that there are lots of ethnic hostilities or or, or, or multinational hostilities within single-state jurisdictions to the point that even when electoral (coughs) results clearly show that you've lost, um, they will not accept it and there will be a fight. Uh, we've seen it happen in Zimbabwe, we've seen it happen in Kenya, we've seen it happen in Guinea. As we speak, it's happening in Ivory Coast. And um, one of the reasons I believe I was asked to talk, speak on this subject is that um, although Ghana looks like this, as you can see, Ghana has been very peaceful in contrast with all at least the four other examples I've mentioned. And I'm going, to, I'm going to take time to explain why Ghana's case is like that, despite the fact that there are all these, there's this ethnic breakdown, um, but it's not a hostile country and they live in peace, as against maybe Zimbabwe or Kenya or Nigeria or, or, or Cote d'Ivoire or Guinea for that matter. Um, and I'm going to be talking about seven main points that contribute to why Ghana lives in peace, although there are lots of ethnic groupings there. The first point is the role of Kwame Nkrumah. He was the first Prime Minister and the first President of the country. Um, And in 1957, when Ghana became independent, Nkrumah, I mean, the colony was called Gold Coast, and Nkrumah decided that it should be called Ghana. And this was based on his own personal conviction from his own academic research on the subject. the, the the outline of Nkrumah's M-Phil thesis used to be on the University of Pennsylvania website. But I think that's been taken off now. But, but just in case, some of you may have encountered it. It, it. it was actually in the public domain until after a while, the University of Pennsylvania took it off. But if you ever saw the outline of Nkrumah's M-Phil thesis, you would know that the agenda he had was more or less a research into the ethno regions of uh, modern Ghana. So he himself had encountered some serious academic work in the field. But the real person who had done lots of the work is is J.B. Dankwa. He started from the 1920s, um, doing lots of research on it. Um, Between 1920s and 1950s, he encountered lots of academic opposition on the subject, rigorous academic opposition, and debated his way through all that. But. At the time when Nkrumah was president, that he named it Ghana, Danka was the opposition leader. So these two were not friends. And if you, know, if you know a bit about Ghana, these two never agreed on anything. They were stark enemies. Uh, so for these two to agree that it should be called Ghana just goes to show that you know, the, um, the substance of the decision they took, that it wasn't just some sort of political fancy, but at least enemies agree that it can be called Ghana. Um, and the independence movement and, and the just cause of anti-colonial, anti-colonialism sort of, you know, brought a kind of a charismatic wave then which really buoyed Nkrumah's charisma. Uh, and I have to say that he was also a little dictatorial, but at the time he was more or less seen as a savior. So, you know, the, the whole wave of nationalism kind of overlooked some of his dictatorial tendencies. So he, he got away with some things. Um, Also, uh, I think the other point I want to to make is that, despite all that, Nkrumah's charisma and the wave of the independence nationalism are not the only factors that have bound the Ghanaian groups together. Um, Because if that were the case, hostilities and disintegration should have taken place when Nkrumah was overthrown. But instead, coherence and cohesion has matured since then. So we know that it wasn't just because of incriminous bully tactics, but that there's something more um, underpinning the whole thing, uh, and I'm and I'm going to sort of come to that. As I said, Eva Mayorowitz separately interviewed the royal households or the chiefs' palaces of these seventy-nine percent. So we're talking maybe um, ethno-national identity groups of maybe at least seven or eight separately at different times, and each time the linguist, or the fetish priest, or, 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 or the chief linguist, the custodian of the royal tra- oral tradition, after they have recounted their story of where they came from, the migration route, and why they are where they are now, came concludes we've come from the old Ghana Empire, separately from all the others who didn't know whether Meroits had gone to interview this bunch or that bunch. Separately, they came to that. So the custodians of the oral tradition have that. And they also have the responsibility to sanction wars and hostilities between other groups. So, for example, um, before any war can take place, it has to be sanctioned by the chief, whose warriors will lead the whole battle uh, and things like that. Uh, but there wasn't, the war wasn't common between them because somehow they knew they'd all come from the same place. I mean, at some point in the in in, in in the geographical politique, when the colonialists had arrived and trade began, I mean, there were, there were there were a few battles to sort of gain ground and and gain you know, sort of conjure trade routes or, or take positions about trade routes. But apart from that, it wasn't really the norm for for them to be fighting each other because they kind of knew from their own tradition that we'd all come from the same place. And particularly um, after independence. Um, not on, I mean, apart from the oral tradition. After independence, we now have a new state, and each one has to abide by by the laws of the new state. So, even if you thought that we came from the same place, um, or even if you didn't care, you can't take up arms and come and fight me because if you did that, you will be prosecuted. I mean, we know that in other examples in Africa, they don't care, and this does happen. But I, I, but, but at least. This this is a scenario. Apart from the psychological factor, um, there was a new state, um, a single state jurisdiction over multiple national national identities. Um, So so that's that, and I mean to date we've got some you know tribal hostilities happening. We've got the the, the Dagbon crisis, which has been raging for a long time, but that is an internal feud. It's not between. It's not one tribe against the other. It's an internal feud between um, the, 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 the sort of ancestral lines ac- that have has to access the throne from, from, from a certain period of time to a certain period. So that's an internal feud. There is also the Bimbela chieftains' dispute between the Nanumbas and the Concombes that has been going on for many years. That is also a feud in between two clans. So more or less, um, there hasn't been really hostilities between you know, the tribes that have come from the same old Ghana empire, I- if I should put it that way. Um, and in view of the traditions of origin and a single-state jurisdiction over these multiple ethno-national identities none of the two cases listed above I mean that Watson Brown or any others listed else will have potential to lead to a separatist or secessionist movement. So, I mean there's no cause for alarm none of these want to get out or break away or go and fight somebody else so 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 all these things contribute to the to how separate groups in Ghana can live in peace without causing too much trouble. Um, And as I said, apart from Meyerowitz's evidence, um, a separate review of all these various authorships put together the jigsaw puzzle. um, So that's point number two of why Ghana is the way it is in in sharp contradistinction to Kenya or Zimbabwe or Nigeria or Guinea or Côte d'Ivoire for that matter. Um, point number three is about balancing the ethnic arithmetic um, Ghana seems to be fine but there's a lot of hard work that has gone on in the past um, each head of state really endeavoured to strike a balance of ethnic representation in their cabinet um, and in addition to that there was this strategic regional appointee so for example they always make sure that an eva was the regional was the secretary of state or the regional commissioner for the every Volta region? Afanti would go to the Central Region, and Ashanti for the Ashanti Region, and and, and for the three northern regions at least, whoever was a secretary of state for them would would come from the area. So even apart from you know the um, the peaceful base, there's a lot of hard work to make sure that the ethnic arithmetic always balances itself. Um, they try not to stoke any fires, more or less. Um, one or two regimes were not too brilliant at this. I mean, we know that the Boussia regime of 6972 wasn't too good at this. And we know that the Erolins era, there is a popular perception that in the Erolins era, he packed his administration with lots of Eves because he thought that the Boussia regime also discriminated against Eves. Uh, so, 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 so these two um, regimes were not too brilliant at the ethnic arithmetic, um, but... General Kutua Champong, who actually was, he came by a coup. D'etat, was a military ruler, He mastered the art of of, of of the ethnic arithmetic, and to be honest with you, in all the heads of among all the heads of state in Ghana, he has been the best at promotion national unity. He instituted the national charter, which had the mantra "One Nation, One People, One Destiny," and in his time, he also instituted a national pledge. And to date school children have to sing that every morning. They sing the national pledge every morning. Uh, And subsequent heads of state have kept, you know, to the ethnic balancing script. So there's been quite a lot of hard work, you know, um, about trying to keep the nation united, more or less. Um, And this ethnic balancing trend has remained, even with, I mean, you would have thought that perhaps maybe the uh, military governments were trying hard to forge national unity, but even the elected civilian governments um, from the Fourth Republic from 1992 up up to now are still balancing the ethnic arithmetic Um, so that's point number three. Point number four is to do with a sociocultural evolution Um, quite apart from you know the multiple groups that exist um, because of the education system because of Christianity and because of Christianity and other Bonds of social networks, there are intermarriages. So, you know, 50 years ago is different from now. I mean, there's been lots of intermarriages and, you know, a huge social cultural evolution taking place. Um, the education, I mean, unlike other places where, you know, schools are kind of tailored for people in certain areas or people of certain class or identity groups, they, the Ghanaian education system is very open. Um, you know, once you once from age 10, you can do your common entrance examination and gain access to any secondary school of your choice, um, regardless of your class or ethnic background. You can basically, you know, from any part of the country, attend school in any part of the country as you wish. And this is a very good chance to mix and grow up together with others from any other identity group. And by doing so, these adolescent bonds tend to supersede any kind of ethnic polarizations. Uh, more or less, so so so, so there's such cultural evolution that's going on, and um, these adolescent bonds, in addition to other bonds through church social networks, lead have led to um, and continue to lead to intermarriages among different identity groups. So this is also another way of um, ensuring that you know the, 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 there is um, sort of Interactions, you know, long-lasting interactions that will basically stop any ethnic polarizations. Um, the fifth point is also that, in addition to all this, lots of sacrifices have been made. Uh, I mean, at some stage, something has to give. But as I said, Ghana has experienced many military governments along the way. But in 1992, for example, flat and Rawlings agreed to conduct elections. And in the Fourth Republic. Um, he won the election, but in two thousand, his party lost, and he handed over. He handed over. He wasn't like Mugabe, who 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 ended up with a power sharing agreement, or or Kenya ended up with power sharing. He handed over basically, and because of what he did, that that sacrifice that he made, in two thousand and eight, the opposition came in, and the opposition also. were there for two terms, four years, and in 2008 the opposition lost by just 0.46 percent, right? And they handed over. You know, you've got places where there are wide margins. He loses by 4 percent and he still wants to stay. These people lost by 0.46 percent and they still handed over. So, there have been quite some huge sacrifices that have been paid um, along the line. And that has also contributed to, 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 to why you know, Ghana is multinational, but is, is able to um, have good governance and, and be in peace. Uh, point number six, uh, and I mean, I, I've kind of thought about all this and, and I just don't know what to put it down to other than maybe just a Ghanaian temperament to sort of prefer to, to set aside hostilities and, and forge ahead with priorities, maybe, uh, because I, mean, I don't know the rocket science to it really. Um, so, point number six is uh, the political evolution of all this has made it. Now we've got two main parties: um, one kind of more socialistic, and, and, and the other more sort of capitalist. Um, and the NDC or the National Democratic Cong- Congress—that's the party that was founded by by Rawlings. Um, they were there from. 92 to 96 and 96 2000 and had to hand over and then came back in 2008 and they are currently in government. Um, they are quite a good amalgam of all ethnic groups. Um, the other opposition party, that's the um, NPP, um, were there from 2000 2004 2004 2008 um, lost again in 2008 and are now in opposition. They are predominantly Akan. The leadership caucus is, is Ashanti and Achim. Uh, the previous president was an Ashanti, who is an Akan. The current presidential candidate is, is Achim, who so, is an So you can say it's more or less an Akan-dominated party. So there's that. But even within this party, for example, within, within the party itself, there's a lot of healthy competition, very, very healthy. It's not antagonistic. The competition is fierce, but it's still healthy competition. And I'll explain that in a minute. Um, in the 2008 elections... In the MPP primaries, the the president, the sitting president, actually anointed Alan Shurmartin because the president was Ashanti, you see. So 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 he thought he he preferred Alan Shurmartin to, to to be the next presidential candidate. Anyway, so the party went to the primaries, but the president, the one the president anointed, lost. Um, he lost. So so I could follow the wins the nomination by 14.9 percent. Uh, I mean, usually, really, if 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 a president, you know, someone and says this is the one I would like to be my successor, it's it's quite hard to beat. But he lost, and he had to be accepted um, anyway. So that went on, but they weren't too happy about it. So what, let's see what happens. They go to the real elections, and in the first round, um, Akuffo, go got forty-nine point one three percent, and Mills got forty-seven point ninety percent. And really, Akuffo just needed—he needed just seventy-three thousand odd votes to win the first round outright. But look what happened. The NPP strongholds are in the Ashanti and Eastern region, and in these two regions, as many as three hundred nineteen thousand registered voters—I mean, these are registered voters—failed to vote. Even ha- if half of them had voted their party man would have won the election in the first round. But the Ashanti didn't vote because they were, they were just annoyed that the, the, the nomination went to an team. Uh, anyway, in the eastern region, as many as 146,000 registered voters couldn't bother to turn up at the polls. If half of them had voted, their party would have won the election in the first round. So what I'm trying to say is that even within the parties, there is fierce competition, still all of that is done in peace. They don't take a balance against each other, that sort of thing. Um, so in the end, once you've lost the first round, the opposition gains ground, and in the end, they were kicked out of government. And as I said, in the end, they were kicked out by just 0.46%. So I've come to the end of my seven seven main points I wanted to make about why Ghana is the way it is, and how multinationalism you know, sort of um, can, can takes place within a single state jurisdiction, yet in peace. Um, and I'm now going to go into some sort of theoretical points because the, the main theme of, of, of this seminar series for this day, we're talking about nation building in the 21st century. We're talking about reflections on the impact of migration, multinationalism, and multiculturalism. And as, as, as I've already been talking about, Ghana, 79% of the country have migrated from the old Ghana Empire. Um, at the moment, it's kind of a, it's still multinational and multicultural, and the nation-building project is still ongoing. It is still ongoing. We haven't, they haven't got 99%. It's not as homogeneous as Portugal and England that, over time, have become one sort of single homogeneous group. Um, so the theoretical points I'm wanting to make, really, are the first one is that The art of brewing the nation in multinational pot still remains a conundrum, Uh, and and by a conundrum I mean that we all know what the solution is, we all know what the the solution should be, but there's still no resolution. We all know that we want one single nation and the the one government umbrella whatever it is. I mean, in all the other examples around the world, that's what they're aiming at. That's what every government is aiming at. So we know what the solution is, yet there is no resolution, that's why it's a conundrum. So, the art of brewing a nation in the multinational port is is still a conundrum. Um, No country has perfected the art. There is no blueprint to follow. Um, There are lots of examples around the world. I'm going to start with many examples, but none is a blueprint to the other. Each country has to work out theirs as they go along. Um, And what tends to happen, uh, which is the other theoretical point, is that Heterogeneity can assume homogeneity with time. I mean, Portugal has done it, uh, England has done it, and even in, even in England, it, you know, England is still part of the UK. Uh, and, and the UK, I mean, there's always talk about devolution. devolution um, Scotland, Wales, none, you know. But at least within, within England, which is a nation itself, I mean, it's a nation because at least we know that England is a separate team in the FIFA World Cup. So, so, so it so is a nation in, in its own right. Um, but, but with time, homogeneity, so heterogeneity can assume homogeneity. And so, I'll sort of conclude with, with, with a quote um, which kind of sums up the scenario um, in Africa, which is that ethno national heterogeneity evolves into national homogeneity if the conditions are right. And the vice versa can take place. If, if the conditions are right, homogeneity can deteriorate. Um, But with time, heterogeneity evolves into homogeneity if the conditions are right. Which also means that heterogeneity is not an absolute obstacle to the attainment of a single national identity for any post-colonial state or for any multinational post-colonial state. In other words, heterogeneity does not always prevent homogeneity or heterogeneity has potential to assume homogeneity if given the chance. Um, so these are the theoretical points which I will sort of conclude with within the theme um, of the seminar series on, you know, nation, multinationals and nation-building in, in the 21st uh, century. So I'll, I'll sort of leave it at that as food for thought. Um, sure. Excellent.
1: Thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks for the interesting presentation. I feel i like learned so much about a country that I thought I already knew a lot about, but obviously there's there's so much more to <laughs> learn about Ghana. So thank you very much, Michael. Um, I'd like to now turn it over to the questions from the floor. So if anyone has a question, now it's
0: time to ask. Let's go to you at please. Um, thanks very much for the talk. It's really very interesting. Um, I'm, I work in um, in LSE Health which is a research center here focused on health policy and um, we've been uh, doing some research and planning for
1: some further research we've run on the social, the social health insurance scheme and I was wondering something that really interests me is whether something like developing a national social health insurance scheme if you feel that's part of a nation
0: building project and whether it have, it, it kind of partly, well, I think it's basically failed in Ghana at the moment to really take off. And is, that, is that
1: a sign of failure of nation building, or do you have anything to say about the connection between, you know, social security, um, everyone paying a,
0: a, a, kind of a, a level of a, a contribution that contributes to a national pot? That, in Europe, after the Second World War, it was able to occur due to the kind of national solidarity that people felt with their fellow citizens after the, after the war. Is that something that we should think about in Africa in a similar kind of way? Sure, sure. Um, are you sh- okay? We'll just take one at a time. Sure, sure. Yeah, the the, the national the the or, or or the national health insurance scheme. Um, is something which Ghana has been struggling with, uh, as, as I'm sure you know. Um, it is part of the nation building project. Um, I mean, already, you know, the, 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 the identity group thing has, I think, they've kind of gone past the face. But now we're talking about, um, really, social security. Uh, I, I think really what, what's happened is because, um, I mean, a pot of money was put down for this scheme to run. Uh, but for some reason, the disbursement of the funds was not quick enough um, to go into um, local health centres uh, to, to fund the scheme. So so it has failed. So it, it, it's more really to do with just the government operators not getting their act together. The government operators not getting their act together, as well as there not being a tradition of... Um, there not being a tradition of, um, sorry, there not being a tradition of citizens contributing to social security, so that when the budget was made, when the decision was made to have a national health insurance scheme, a budget, you know, some part of money was put there, but it wasn't as if those they're going to get it from citizens, so the government began to struggle with the implementation of it, so that is part of the next phase of the nation building project. And, and, the, and, and they'll have to kind of work hard to get it done. They'll have to work hard to get it done. But as you say, I think one way would be to, to sort of establish a tradition of social security uh, contributions that will build up towards this sort of thing. Um, one of the reasons this hasn't happened is because of the database. Um, the national taxation database is still being revamped. And, and, and I think once that's done, then they're going to be able to know the sources of funding to certain um, national or social security projects. And that, that's going to help the National Insurance Scheme. So it's so, about nation building project, they're kind of working at it, but they're not there yet. Um, fortunately, the current president is, is a tax expert, he's a professor of taxation. So actually in his time, he's actually revamping the whole national tax database. And I think from then they're going to be able to know how to handle, you know, where the money should come from to go into social security. And it's not going to be health; it will be other things as well. Um, so I don't know whether that, that helps in any way. Sure. Is
1: that okay? I'm um, serious so the gentleman here, and just the back. There. There you go. I'm Elijah, um, I'm from Ghana, from All right. I'm, I'm I don't know if you are aware of the fact that um, a couple of months ago, Chiefs from the Western region, walked to the um, National House of Parliament to demand that 10% of the oil revenue should be invested in the, right, right, of yeah, the sure, Western sure.
0: region. Um,
1: what do you make of that? Do you think it's going to worsen it polarization?
0: Um, okay, um, f- for, for the benefit of the rest, um, basically, um, there is this kind of. There's the usual talk around the world that if natural resources are coming from a geographical region, then 10% of, of what's coming whether the gold or the oil or the diamonds should be used to develop that geographical area. And the vice president somehow dropped himself into it and made an announcement during, during the electoral campaigns that, oh, if we win the election, we're going to make sure that 10% of the oil proceeds are used to develop the western region where the oil is going to be dug from. Uh, and and he'd forgotten he'd made that so at some point um, (laughs) at some point there was the National Petroleum Bill going through Parliament and it became clear that the bill as it stood if it was passed was not going to fulfill the campaign promise that 10% should go to the Western Region so the people in Western Region you know gathered together and marched all the way to the House of Parliament and said hey this is what you said this is what we demand this is what we want um, and, and, and he's kind of asking whether that, whether, that's the way, whether that's going to cause any ethnic polarization. No, it, it wouldn't cause any ethnic polarization. What it means really is that the government now has to be accountable for what it said it would do. That's what you said you were going to do. That's what's done all around the world. And it, it makes sense that if you're actually drilling oil from a particular place, that for the sake of corporate social responsibility, you set aside some of the money for the development of that place because really they're the ones that are going to bear the brunt of some of the repercussions. Uh, If the oil spills, they're the ones that are going to face it. Um, Sometimes, because of the influx of money that comes around, you get lots of other um, social vices taking place in the area. Um, Burglaries and thefts, prostitution and other things um and there's going to be a lot of competition for schools there as well because you've got all, lots of workers coming to live there because of the oil industry so really it makes sense for government to set aside some amount of money to develop the area which is what they are demanding and it's not going to cost any. i think the can the rest of the country supports them in that way so it's not going to cause any ethnic polarization and i think it's a good idea that they, they reminded the government that that's what they said
1: Michael, uh, my name is Marshall, and uh, okay. as you know, um, I'm from Côte d'Ivoire. <laughs> and uh, since you mentioned Côte d'Ivoire in your presentation, I'd like to come back to your um, introduction. Okay. You said that in Côte d'Ivoire we have 75% of account. Okay. Yes. And my intervention will um, focus on three points. The okay. first one is I'd like you to comment a little bit on uh, the political strategy that the first president of he Coast uh, from that group um, has put in place to be able to rule the country since 1960 up to 1993, nearly 35 to 40 years. Do you think that um, his strategy was based on ethnicity? And did he have the backing of this 75% of our country? To be able to rule the country eh, in that perspective, and um, the second um, intervention, is, second point is, um, in terms of ethnicity, we know that African politics is very much dominated by um, this kind of um, um, concepts You know, you use et- um, group ethnics to be able to rule or to win election and all that. Um, Looking at the big picture, do you think that in the long run, ethnicity um, will be um, brought down in order, to, in order for democracy you know, to flourish? Like in the case of Ghana, uh, you just mentioned that we're moving towards this kind of situation where ethnicity is no much more uh, the essence of, of the way people choose to vote. To, do you think that that one day we leave the way uh, to democracy? And um, the third one is um, um, in terms of um, specifically talking about Ghana, um, I know that Nkrumah um, was an academic, he's, he's got a PhD in that. And um during the time that Nkrumah was very much in in, in fashion um, with regard to um, his concept and theory know how to, to fashion Ga- um, Ghana as a, as, as a nation. I know that there, there was um, a big chunk of the Ghanaian population that migrated into America and um, they studied a lot, just trying to follow maybe up to improvement. Uh, um, Do you think that the diaspora um, in Ghana has played a role, a very major role in terms of? Um, um, down the boundaries of ethnicity,
0: uh, ethnicity in order to have to, to the kind of um, homogeneity uh, uh, of kind of society that we have here in India. Right. Let's see if we can sort out Cote d'Ivoire. Um, Hufo Borelli, your first president, started very well. Yeah. Actually, as I'm sure you know and some, some others know, um, the ethnic Wataris, um, I mean, at the time when the French took over, it was even it was actually until 1947 that the boundaries were finalised between the upper Volta of Burkina Faso, and Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, so you've got ethnic Wataras who are Burkina who have actually lived in Cote d'Ivoire, you know, from 1637 when the French encountered um, Ivorians. Hufo what he did really was that he didn't antagonize any of these groups. What happened really was that um, the migrant population were needed for the cocoa farms. So they
1: were all basically incorporated.